I know my grandmother was very angry that because he tried to um, really just erase himself in a way that prevented him from actually connecting with his children, but also passing on that language, that culture, those traditions more directly than my grandmother. Um, I, I know she was, I mean, of course she loved, she loved her children, but I know that there was, uh, there were complex, complicated feelings there because of his refusal, his abnegation of his identity. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about daddy issues, father figures, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We examine how fathers, both literal and symbolic, influence pop culture, politics, and the lives of people of every generation from all over the world. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. Hi, this is Matthew. On today's episode of Tell Me About Your Father, I talk with culture writer Marcy Bianco, author of the book Breaking Free, The Lie of Equality, and The Feminist Fight for Freedom. Considering the book's title alone, Breaking Free, it's no surprise that, as Marcy lays out her argument that equality is a racist, patriarchal ideal that perpetuates the oppression of women and limits the possibilities of feminism, she writes in the book about, among many other things, Britney Spears' struggle to end her conservatorship. We featured Marcy's take on Britney in the last episode of Tell Me About Your Father, in which Erin and Elizabeth unpack Britney's memoir. Take a listen when you're done with this episode. It's a fascinating supplement to the primary text. Marcy has written for MSNBC, Vanity Fair, The Advocate, and CNN, among others. She is an editor at Stanford's Social Innovation Review, where she co-edits and co-produces the quarterly print magazine working with journalists around the world who report on cross-sector and philanthropic ventures. Before that, she served as an editorial and communications manager at the Clayman Institute at Stanford University, where she oversaw the translation and dissemination of the Institute's gender research. In this episode, Marcy and I talk about her childhood growing up working class in South New Jersey with a father who, as she puts it, erased himself, and how that foundation informs her perspective on society and politics today. We talk about how her family dynamic shifted when she got a sports scholarship to Harvard, a moment that changed her life forever, how she learned to defend herself at an early age against her father's violent outbursts, and what it means to throw off the shackles of systemic oppression and create a life of your own making. Given how bleak it is to truly look at systemic white patriarchal oppression, another manifestation of father-centric culture if ever there was one, and how it continues to play out in myriad ways for anyone who isn't a straight white man, Marcy's take on culture and her book are both fundamentally hopeful, even if she initially struggled to find that sense of hope. Breaking Free is a deeply accessible book. I flew through it. It's available where all good books are sold and is published by Hachette. Also, if you can, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Because everything is essentially an algorithm, the more reviews and ratings we get, the more we show up when people go looking for podcasts. It's also really easy to rate and review. All you have to do is look at the Apple Podcast app and follow the prompts. You could even just leave a starred review if you'd rather be stoic and mysterious. If all of that sounds far too exhausting, and listen, we get it, you might consider sending it directly both to someone who might like it. For example, I'll be texting the link to this episode to my niece, Sage, and 
sending it to someone who might hate it so much that they rail against it online. Both options work out really well for us. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode with Marcy Bianco. I want to start this episode in the same way that you began your book on page, well, not began it literally, but like page six of the introduction. And I'm wondering if you could read, could you read page six? My small South Jersey town where mutter trucks bore Confederate flags on their way to the local rodeo at Cowtown was Reagan country. I grew up in a place so Anglo-homogenous that white Catholics were treated as social outliers. Regardless of countless childhood experiences in which I was told I couldn't or wasn't allowed to do something because of my gender, I never connected my anger to any broader sense of injustice. I wasn't yet capable of seeing beyond myself. I just had an intuition, this deep gut feeling apparent to me around the time I was nine years old, that it was ridiculous that I had to wear a shirt outside because, I was told, you're a girl. While all the neighborhood boys, including my two younger brothers, got to run around unencumbered by cheap synthetic tops. Or that I did not receive my high school's inaugural student-athlete award, even though I had a higher GPA and more varsity letters than the boy who won it, because, as the school's PTA president, a good friend's dad, apologetically confided to me after the ceremony, we had to give it to a boy first. Nevertheless, my passionate opposition to feminism continued into my 20s. Even after I completed my graduate degree in women's studies, I thought feminism wasn't integral to my life because, during my studies, I became a lesbian and believed that in doing so, so I had fully freed myself from every single vestige of the patriarchy. Women's studies, my gateway to lesbianism. I rejected the heterosexual game. I didn't care what men thought of me. I didn't dress for them or schedule my time around them. Men weren't the referent of my life. In fact, I can't remember a time, even before I became a lesbian, when I ever regarded men as authorities of what was right or good, whether that man was my biological father or a religious father. I became an atheist when I was eight years old because my endless existential questions were met with, quote, because the Bible says so, which even then I knew was absurd. How did you manage to sidestep absorbing the idea that your father was an authority? This is, this is really interesting. I, I figured this is going to be almost like a therapy session for me. How did I say something? Mm. It's, I never, how did I sidestep that he was an authority? Well, I think first he was rarely around um, because he, by that time was working and I believe he still works in a glass factory and he's a shift worker. So he was very rarely around when I was awake as a child. And if he was home, he was usually sleeping if he was on shift work. So it was rare that I had these interactions with him or they weren't, you know, he wasn't a daily continuous presence in my life. But also, and this might sound a bit cruel, I can't remember a time when I thought of either of my parents as authorities or I was very that I was ever very reverential to them I always kind of saw them as um uh, I want to say idiots 
uh, I didn't really have a lot of respect for them. And the person I saw as that parental figure in my life was my paternal grandmother. She was really that parent for me in my life. I just, I think I always saw my parents as children. My earliest memories of my parents have always been as children and that I had to, in a way, parent them or that I had a very weird relationship to them. I, I don't know what it really feels like to have parents in either regard, but especially a father. Was it an education thing? Um, or just you just happened to be smarter than them as a person? It, I, I, don't, I don't think it was an education thing. We, I, I was never read to as a child. I wasn't allowed to buy books because they weren't seen to be valuable. They were seen to just be lying around the house and that they had no value. They did nothing for you. So they were a waste. It was very rare that I was able to like go to the scholastic book fair and like save up whatever coins I had and buy a book. Um, that's, you know, it's something that I haven't really thought of about in, in depth. I just know that based on my interactions with my parents and how they interacted with each other i just felt like they were very childish how so very immature they they were always fighting um they didn't communicate well they never really expressed love i mean this is now i'm, I'm thinking of myself as a young child but now as a as a uh, older child around 10 11 12 um i just remember that they didn't really have the capability to express love even though you know if they if they did love me I'm you know I'm, I'm not really discounting that but they had a difficult time expressing their emotions and communicating them clearly clearly and having um genuine conversations with each other there was never you know, the idyllic scene of family sitting around a dining room table and talking about anything, anything pertaining to cultural affairs or, you know, what's on television or there was nothing in depth in my in my life uh, when it came to my parents. I just remember them fighting a lot and being very childish and very um, vengeful in their actions and behaviors toward each other. It's, is it a class thing, do you think? I think it's absolutely related to class. How is, you know, a great question. I, I, I know my father barely graduated from high school. And when he did, he worked at a gas station. And I think he was dealing with his own issues, which I talk about br very briefly in the book, because I don't feel like that, that they're necessarily mine to talk about. I used his example as an example of a assimilation mm -hmm. and of assuming the privileges of whiteness to distinguish oneself from one's roots and the kind of trauma of, of that particular ethnicity in America at the time. Uh, but definitely a class issue. I always wonder if I had parents who um, believed in literacy, for example, <laughs> or had a kind of cultural intelligence or social intelligence, how might I be different? Um, how would my own relationships have been different? Uh, it's strange. I I do think it's a class thing, but it's related. I don't necessarily think class. Um, how do I want to say this? I don't think class determines one's intelligence. No, your your story reminds me of you know the the um, French writer Edouard Louis. Do you know him? 
He, mm. he wrote The History of Violence and he wrote a book called The End of Eddie, which was okay. a story about growing up working class in France yeah. and how much he, he just was very curious about books. He, he's an, in, I mean, he's a philosopher and a public intellectual, um, and a playwright and his family's absolute virulent hatred of the intelligentsia, um, right. very class-based, the anger that pervaded the, the community and how he, as a young gay man as well, you know, became, you know, was the target of a lot of violence and how he still has to kind of deal with the fact that everyone, you know, gets these accusations of, you think you're better than us now, right? And, you know, that kind of thing. Do you have that experience? Absolutely. Oh yeah, my yeah. goodness. Yeah. No, I, I'm not familiar with him, but his experience absolutely resonates with mine because uh, once I got into college, I felt the dynamic shift between me and my relatives, especially the ones that I would get along with. And there were, I mean, even friends in school accusations of, oh, you think you're so much better than us. So I feel like there is this class, working class mindset that disdains education because it's always been a barrier mm -hmm. in some regard, right? A barrier yeah. to access and opportunities, but also a kind of social belonging. And I do remember that, and, and it just frankly being very shocking to me because I was always told the only way that I was going to get ahead and get out that whole kind of immigrant ethos of you have to do good and do better and you know establish yourself and be successful I was that was always in force throughout my childhood but once I the door opened to college to Harvard right the culture around me the familial culture around me shifted and there was a lot right. of bitterness and resentment but that was also social, too, again, at school. Um, I just remember entire friendships breaking down because I got into college. I got into very particular colleges, Ivy League colleges. As a, as a sports scholar, you got Absolutely. a scholarship. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> there was no other. I mean, I, I say this very plainly. I got into Harvard and different Ivy League schools because I threw the javelin very far. That doesn't mean that I didn't do well in my classes, but I went to a small public school where there was not a lot of uh, community investment in education or belief in education, right? It was always this uh, language of, well, we don't want our taxes to increase, so therefore we're not going to pass any of these school budgets. So right. there were even years when I was using the same textbooks that my father was using when he was in high school in the 70s. <laughs> it was Great. pretty wild. Yeah, it was absolutely wild. How do you discuss this with your I mean, do you discuss your life and this book, particularly with your dad or anything with your dad at this point? You said, I think no. he works in a glass factory. So like you don't. I don't know. Um, we don't really have much communication on birthdays. We will send three word text messages. Happy birthday. You know, happy birthday, Marcy. Happy birthday, dad. And that will be the extent of it. However, uh, and I was even shocked at this. I got a message, a text message from him saying that he bought my book. I don't think that he'll actually read it. Um, but I was pretty shocked that I got, you know, I was surprised he could actually take a picture and send a picture via text message. But he sent okay. a picture saying it arrived. And that's wow. all I heard. So, um, yeah, I don't know what to think about it. It's 
you know, I did see not to not to compare myself to Britney Spears, but I did see um, some news piece on her saying she's trying to have more compassion for her father. And I think that's something that I was trying to work on, especially in my 20s and 30s when I was very angry with him, extremely angry with him. And I think she's trying to do that. We, we see that in her introduction when she tries to locate the source of his own trauma and his anger and his alcoholism, right? She's trying to locate that in his own childhood, which again, I, to your point, I think is very generous. But this working through, her book to me is a working through. It's, I didn't think it was particularly um, deep in the ability to go into the root of things. I feel like the chapters are very short. The form, the structure very much represents the fact that uh, she's extremely traumatized. Well, and I yeah. feel like once we get to something that could open a door to a deeper story, a deeper connection, the chapter ends, the point moves on. And I, I feel like she's really still at a surface level of working through decades of, of abuse, mm -hmm. frankly. And that doesn't surprise me. This is not a fault of the book. She wrote this book, what, a year after coming out of her conservatorship. I think this will be, you know, de there will be decades, a, a life of, of trying to work through the trauma that she experienced and trying to make sense of it. Like, why? She does ask this in the book. Why? Why me? Why? Why did this happen to me? Why didn't my parents defend me or support me or you know she has this part in the book where she says my dad i found out that my dad could stop the conservatorship why did he not do that right and he prevented her from having contact with friends what you were saying there dovetails into the, the question i was going to ask you you talk about in this in the passage that you read about not connecting your anger to injustice and that certain mm. things seemed ridiculous so you did have an anger then was it just sitting there unresolved for years and did it come out in unexpected ways and then you were you were saying in your 20s and 30s you're like oh got, i gotta deal with my anger and my working father. with right well trying to free myself from i think anger can actually be very productive i'm not someone Same. who says anger is a terrible thing me too but it was really preventing me from establishing deep relationships with other people because i was you know there are a few things that my father actually told me as a child and again i say he wasn't the most loquacious person and wasn't didn't communicate very well but one thing he would say over and over and over again is trust no one do not trust anyone trust no one i mean on repeat and so having that kind of etched into my memory and into my you know <laughs> into my skin into my body um made it very difficult for me to have relationships with other people, you know, intimate relationships with anyone um, in my 20s and 30s. And that my relation to him and that anger was a barrier to actually opening myself up to other people. So I, I think that connection to Brittany, to go back to what was about un understanding so that you can find some grace within yourself to take care of yourself and to love yourself because you know you feel very demoralized you feel worthless you don't understand why you're being treated a certain way and Brittany talks about this um 
But in order to make, if you're able to make sense of where your parents' anger is coming from, not to excuse it, but to just understand it, then you can reclaim some of your dignity and self-worth, I think, in, in certain ways. And I think she's she's trying to do that too. And also kind of break that, the the vector, the emotional tenor of that relation. Like right now, it's completely toxic, just like it was with my father. And just that's like all of that anger expends so much energy. Like I, I do love anger. Again, I do think it can be productive. But if you're in any kind of relationship where you're just spinning and, you know, fuming, bodily exhausting. Yeah. And it's energy well spent. Right. I guess kind of br bringing context to their actions also facilitates the like maturing process where you just see your parents as adults, not as, right. you know, deities or something like that. Like, right. Well, as actual people and not yeah. as to your point, right, to being a quote unquote mother or father, which is, as again, has a very particular kind of, you're right, godlike um, presence, right? To it, shell to it. Yeah. Let's just backtrack a little. Your family, you're from South Jersey, as you said. What is your family structure? Who did you grow up with? What was your family? What was my family? Gosh, I, again, my family to me was my paternal grandmother. Um, who passed away when I was a, a teenager from colon cancer. And I essentially, because my father, again, worked shift work, and this is uh, before my younger brothers are born, I'm four, four years older than my the middle child. Um, I spent those first four or five years living with my grandparents. Um, they lived in the same town. I mean, true to being, there's a whole Italian-American like boy thing in our mm -hmm. culture that I would love to impact, like the mama's boy thing that I would, it's just super fascinating to me. But my father being the eldest child was very close to his mother and really babied. Um, you know, he was the, the eldest boy, right? He was the boy. Um, so we had to live in the same town. From what I was told, we had to live in the same town as, as his parents. So while my parents were working, I, I essentially lived with my grandparents, but my grandfather was also working in construction. And so I spent all of my days with my grandmother. Apparently I was fluent in Italian. You know, she would, I can still recall like songs she would sing to me in Italian. She would peel grapes for me and feed me grapes. I mean, I was, she was my everything. And I think in a way I was her everything to the, to the kind of vitriol of my my two aunts, they get angry sometimes because my grandmother would tell them that I was her, I was her favorite person, and they would say, "Well, you're our mother, so why aren't we your favorites?" Uh, which also a problem afterwards after her passing. Um, again, my right. yeah, there were, there were several familial issues going on in, in my life. Was she disappointed in her son, uh, in relation to how he fathered you? Father, I think you. Weird, absolutely but, yeah. clear to me in, in several ways. One, a profound disappointment being uh, first and foremost that he married my mother, who was not 
it's it's not necessarily that she was not Italian or that she was not Catholic, although that was a significant issue. But from what the stories that I was told is that my mother is a deeply unserious person and she's very melodramatic. And deeply unserious? What, like not not like hilarious or like she just doesn't try very hard or what do you mean doesn't doesn't try very hard but there's this um complacency and even pleasure with ignorance and so deeply unserious because there is a there is a refusal to engage with anything deep or substantive or meaningful or even if she's encountered if i tell her some if I talk to her occasionally and I mention something horrific going on in the world, she would just say, oh, well, oh, oh, well, it happens, you know. So there's a there's a blockage to her engaging with anything really profound and meaningful. Um, but I know my my dad's family did not want them to get married and they were very, very angry about that. So I believe that there was a disappointment um, in in that first regard of my father leaving his mother, my grandmother, for this blonde, you know, Anglo-German woman um, who was Protestant, you know, Methodist. And then also my, in my father's refusal, and I do mention this in my, in my book, my father's refusal to speak Italian in the home, to have any kind of... Um, love or interest or community in in like italian life in, in their roots in their history he he really distanced himself from the entire culture and i know my grandmother was very angry that because he tried to um really just erase himself in a way that prevented him from actually connecting with his children, but also passing on that language, that culture, those traditions more directly than my grandmother. Um, I, I know she was, I mean, of course she loved, she loved her children, but I know that there was, uh, there were complex, complicated feelings there because of his refusal, his abnegation of his identity. What's behind that, do you think? Is it, it seems like men do this where, you know, it's that thing where they refuse to be vulnerable. They don't feel anything. And it's a, it's almost like they're soldiering on at best, but they're callously, you know, stoic. I mean, this is kind of how patriarchy fucks men up too. Right. But I mean, like what's behind it with your dad, do you think? I think it's absolutely the idea of masculinity in american society being that men must act certain ways and divorce themselves from actually knowing themselves and their emotions i think that's one significant component and the other being i think james baldwin was brilliant on this point of understanding the assumption of whiteness and what that means in terms of severing oneself from one's roots and he, James Baldwin wrote specifically about Italian-Americans um, and how they assume the privileges of whiteness, right? The price of the right. ticket. because you pass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And my father was, my father, I mean, my family came from Southern Italy, which has its own, uh, there's, there's an entire ethnic and kind of racialization of Southern Italians. We, I mean, there's literature, there's. You know, Wait, whereabouts in southern Italy? So Calabria. 
Oh, so great. Where the my, pep, my favorite chili peppers. Um, yeah. <laughs> so the two towns, Sarsale and Cherva, are where my grandparents are from. Um, but there's a whole racialization of Southern Italians of being swarthy, of having African blood that really right. still permeated. I think less so today, but in the early and mid 20th century, that was very prevalent in the culture and just the, feel like the kind of harassment that my father and um, his siblings received growing up. So I, I think it's those two components of severing. He really divorced himself from him, himself he, in, in both regards, in terms of gender and in terms of ethnicity, which meant that if he couldn't connect to himself, who, how was he going to form any kind of relationship with anyone, even his children? Right. I don't think any of what you just said about masculinity is shocking, I mean, to listeners or me or you or anybody. Oh. So given what men are, what is the role of a father as distinct from a mother, do you think? Like, what is a healthy masculine influence on a child? Oh, that to me, that's so interesting because when I think of parenting, I think of, and and I'm going to get back to the whole like masculine influence, feminine influence, because I feel like these, these exist in our culture, but I don't necessarily believe that they have to in order to, you know, create and help nurture children to become individual beings who um, have human dignity, who can think critically and assess themselves and are aware of themselves and their landscape and of how they engage with other people. I don't know how to answer that question because masculinity is so defined by culture. Mm -hmm. And a masculine influence on a child that automatically genders certain behaviors that I think anyone can have. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah, how right. do you, you know, someone might say, Oh, well it's, you know, how to be assertive or how to stand in oneself or this kind of self possessiveness, which I don't think has to be no. or is gendered. I, I don't think I've ever learned that from a man. I've only learned that from women. Women have demonstrated for me, the ability to survive, to transcend, to, you know, and to make difficult, painful right. decisions that are the right ones. I think it's, maybe it's that. It's like watching someone make the right decisions or make right. healthy or mature decisions as a child is what teaches you and it can be. Right. Or it could anyone. be, you know, now that it could be given our culture, right? We can't operate in vacuums, but a healthy masculine influence would be one that does not equate masculinity with supremacy. Yeah. <laughs> I think like that's right. the baseline, the frankly. Best, the best we can do is that you just don't assume you run the world, Gray. Oh, good. Right. I mean. Right. Or, you know, and it's reconceiving of authority because I do, I do believe in expertise. I do believe, you know, like. I do believe in authority, but there's a way to understand authority that isn't um, supremacist or d relies on oppressing others. So, you know, right. this is often talked about and based, you know, given my day job, this is uh, 
the discourses around like leadership, how to be a leader in a way that doesn't demand the complete dehumanization of, you know, the people mm -hmm. you work with. So right. there, there's, a, there's something that can be drawn from that. What is the correlation between one's own experience of family and the way that they operate within and view social structures? What is the correlation? Yeah, like, for, well, even for you, like growing up, because mm -hmm. for me, with your book, you are writing a book that argues that on page 94 or something, 97, you are, equality is always manufactured according to its patriarchal design. I think mm -hmm. that is a really great way of saying it. The goal of equality is inher inherently patriarchal. So your, your book lays out the case that equality is not the goal. Mm -hmm. Um, it is, you know, it is a, it, there's a new way of looking at things in a, in a creative, responsible, accountable way of living. Um, so that in a sense, you're taking aim at the patriarchy. So, th you know, the question is how much of your own relationship with your father led you to this? I, I don't think anyone can, uh, successfully refute the fact that there are their lives, you know, do not influence the work, their work. I don't believe anything is objective or objectively produced. So clearly the origins of this book really um, come from my childhood and, and how I perceived the structures given, you know, that I was given that I was a child, but how I saw men and women operate and function in my family, which are very distinct for me, um, especially in my Italian family. I didn't really um, hang around my mother's family that much, but the women were very, the women in my family, my aunts, were very um, independent, very curious, intellectually curious, very motivated, very motivated to success. They um, created their own lives and, you know, they left the home. They, you know, do not live in the same town as my grandparents, but my uncle and my father do. And my uncle and father have very different, uh, relationships to the family have played very different roles and just seeing how men and women operate in my family and how they've in turn been able to create their own lives and how they've gotten ahead respectively has absolutely influenced like what I, or how I approach the structures within our society. I mean, at a, at a bare foundation, that doesn't mean that they, that they directly, that there's a direct influence, but I think clearly the origins are there, origins lie there. I do, you know, I think you said it perfectly Quality is defined by those in power and it manifests because it is an artifice manifests in the institutions that you said that I just paraphrased you. <laughs> you were the one who said it. You said it perfectly, not me. That, you know, as an artifice, as an application, it only takes shape within these institutions that are patriarchal. So, you know, my goal in this book, which is also a goal of my life, is how do we create meaningful and joyful lives that feel free while at the same time also understand that we live in a world with billions of other people 
and that their lives are valuable and they deserve human dignity and respect and that we need to be accountable for how we in- interact and, and treat other people. Um, to me, that is really world changing, more so than saying, you know, here's an equality law on the records, you know, go for. Um, that's what I always wanted to do. And I always saw these structures and even familial structures as really being barriers to living the life that I wanted mm-hmm. to live. So do you think that you would ever want to be a parent? Well, interestingly, um, no. <laughs> Fair enough. I have been I have been in relationships, including my present one where my partner has children. Okay. And so I have been in this particular role. I've been in this role before, more than 10 years ago, and I've been in this current role for a couple of years now. And it's it's a it's a strange role because you it depends on the other parents involved, right? Like how they arrange and construct the situation. But my only desire really is to ensure that these children can grow up to become uh, independent, thoughtful, civic-minded people, right? Who are always asking questions, who are always thinking critically. That is my desire. So if Mm -hmm. I'm able to inform that in any way. And I think always, you know, something that I've tried to do is be too, I mean, too explicit, overly communicative, um, because I grew up in a, in a household where we did not communicate, but really explaining certain situations that maybe some people would say, oh, well, that isn't meant for a 10-year-old child. I actually think children are pretty smart, mm-hmm. really are extremely curious, more so than adults. And they want to know. They want to know why. They want to know the hows. They want to know the where to tours, right? Um, so explaining situations and language that they that it's accessible to them right like really kind of translating a situation for a 10 year old child while still respecting them as a human right and and (laughs) knowing that they're very curious and that they can comprehend certain situations because they live in households where you know they get the vibes right they understand especially you're growing up in a a divorce situation any child of divorce feels the vibes of those households and they they want to understand what is going on so they don't end up blaming themselves and so i feel like i played i play very particular roles in this kind of third party situation i am very reluctant to use the kind of step parent label um but have you have you ever gone to one of your stepchildren's schools when they're being bullied and walk up and introduce yourself as their father yeah. Have you ever done that specific thing? God, I would love I can to. see you doing that, actually. And pull I would love Atar, to be there. Pull, pulling yeah. Olivia Tar. Um, yeah, yeah. Very tempted to. And I will say the closest that I've ever approached a kind of Lydia Tar um, kind of persona has been at a, um, at, a, at a sports game. So one of 
one of the children plays soccer and I, I mean, I think, you know, me, I'm very loud and I, I, um, yeah, I, I kind of approach Lydia Tar territory when it comes to sports. I can, um, <laughs> I'm not shocked given that you got into Harvard by throwing a javelin competitively. That's not surprising to me. I want to go to page 181. This is what you've written. As the sex doll market booms, the increasing demand for lifelike female dolls points to human women's fatal flaw, being alive. Sure. Our humanity, from our aging to our agency, has proven a real downer for men. You go on to say, advances in technology have enabled men to pivot their strategy from uh, turning women into objects to turning objects into women, not only through dolls, but through AI chatbot innovations like Replica, which is designed to mimic its owner and speech style and patterns over time. I read that and I went on Replica today and it was deeply <laughs> unnerving, deeply unnerving. So like, I wondered if you knew, if you had to take it, like, is this about the nature of the male erotic gaze? Because I wonder if you think gay men have that same view of other men. Can it be an equivalent? Because I would imagine there's sort of quite a lot of um, male dolls that are made as well, um, yeah. you know? I I absolutely think that dynamic can exist between any two people. I do think it takes on this kind of uh, structural gendered element when it comes to men and women and the kind of history of women's oppression and humanity. So kind of a larger sociocultural uh, framework is how I'm also approaching the replica bot use between men and women. But absolutely, I think, again, I, you know, I, I mentioned Barbara Johnson earlier, but her book, you know, you know, I co I dedicate the book to Barbara Johnson and to my paternal grandmother, uh, Angela Bianco. So Barbara Johnson was a huge influence in my life and she wrote this book, persons and things. Um, and she has this great line where, you know, treating people as, as things reassures us. And I think there's a reassurance or an assurance when you have a replica doll that you won't be rejected, that yeah. you will be loved because frankly, you are programming that, that doll to love you, to love you in your entirety, right? To love you unconditionally. Which is, frankly, the way the Britney Spears uses it in her memoir. She just wants to be loved unconditionally by her father to not be judged. Right. And I do think that of wanting unconditional love and not being judged um, exists for all people. At the same time, I think, you know, within a within a a kind of sociocultural and political context, it takes on certain gendered elements when it's men and women, right? And given the history of how women and are- Power dynamic and, and being afraid. I mean, I guess that's, okay, so many things come up here. I, I guess that's why I wondered if the reason that you would, I, I was surprised that you escaped when you said that, you know, we were talking about how you, how you escaped kind of considering your father an authority figure. I was like, I can see all of that playing out. You just didn't respect him. He wasn't really around. But the one thing that they can do is exert physical mm -hmm. threats to you. And then you learn, no matter how you think, you're like, I got to avoid the, the beating. Like, and that's how it's inflicted. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, that male-female dynamic is not surprising at all to me. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, though, 
the idea that there's something kind of like quite human about wanting unconditional love. But a friend of mine was just talking about this with me the other day, like this way that like, you know, partners will control each other in this like okay. very kind of, you're not allowed to do all of these things. And, and my friend Kamel was like, it's just totally immature to treat somebody like that. Right. And this idea that you can have an engagement with somebody on any level where they don't question you, they're not critical. It's, it's this instinct to just like avoid growth and avoid, Absolutely. you know? Oh, I mean, and there, I mean, I feel like there are so many different discourses, object theory, right? We can talk about even identity politics, right? This idea that we, again, we want people to be things so that we can deal with them. Because mm -hmm. if people have agency, if they're mobile, if they can exert themselves, right, if there's any kind of animation, any kind of humanity to them that prevents us from pinning them down and defining them on our own terms, of handling them on our own terms, right? Like it's like pinning a butterfly down. Um, I think identity works in the same exact way. If, you know, identifying someone else, giving an identity to someone else allows us to pigeonhole them, stereotype them, and then treat them according to how we want to treat them, given the power dynamics of our society. Um, I think it's absolutely immature. It's refusing to see the humanity of another person, which I think for certain people in relationships can be very scary because that means that this other person uh, might not always be there despite signing a marriage contract, right? Despite promising, right? That, right. you know, this is the Nietzschean contract thing. The hardest thing to do is to sign the contract saying that, you know, you'll, you will be in this relation in the quality of the, of the relation for decades. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, or, or, you know, if you're mature enough, understanding that the relation itself will change and evolve as to people change and evolve in non-synchronous ways. Taking that further, I think looking at just the notion of imperialism, particularly like the British Empire, it's so deeply adolescent to go, mine, expand, mm -hmm. teenage boy. It's teenage boy. Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't want to, I want it all. I want to expand. It's man spreading on the subway. It's like, you know, and it's, I take up space. I exist, I exist, I exist. And everyone has to conform to me. So I don't have to feel the pain of growth and, and, and compromise. And cause growth is painful often. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's right. weird. And it's that kind of, it's, but what you're identifying is the very kind of freedom that i'm challenging my book this american it's very i feel like it is imperialistic but also extremely americanized version or understanding of freedom that believes in like unfettered license to do whatever you want whenever totally. you want and the, the hypocrisy right and and even the irony is that you know it's this notion of doing whatever you want whenever you want having complete impunity and complete power while at the same time feigning, you know, or, or absconding from responsibility saying, you know, like I did not cause any of this. I cannot be held responsible for any of this, which then. The, yeah. You, you know, give the example of refusing to wear a mask or, or a, to get a vaccine in your book. Right. You talk about that. It's like, yeah. I'm American. This is my, my right not to do this, my body, my choice. And it's like, you are affecting a lot of un 
you're having right. an impact on a lot of other people in a lot of different ways by making this very selfish. And it's like they see themselves as all power, right? They see themselves as all powerful and wanting to see themselves as all powerful, but then refusing to see their power affects other people. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's very like, well, it's very American. It's about marketing it yourself is. as some kind of exceptional leader that should be paid more than anyone else for doing mm -hmm. very little. Um, and it's true with the whole space colonization thing, which I wrote oh about years ago, right? It's the same, the, uh, the ethos, the mindset is exactly the same. Spreading oneself into, into space without consequence, without, you know, it's just too, the thinking about the mindset that says, this is, if I'm a billionaire, this is where I'm going to believe I'm going to change or save humanity as opposed to actually saving humanity as it exists on this planet. It's, it's, well, it's adolescent. Point. It's adolescent yeah. and unchecked nonsense. I think what, this is like a more primal version of that question. What evolutionary instincts are at the core of this human wide innate deference to men or this instinct that men have to seize all power to the point of self-negation. I guess we just discussed that, right? Because it like I keep thinking of Kate Bush, like, is there so much hate for the ones we love? Tell me we both matter, don't we? Like, why is it that we have to fight so hard just to simply be humans who exist in the same space? I don't know if it's ethical. I think it's social conditioning. I don't social conditioning. I don't necessarily think it's um, innate. Any, yes. Yeah. Although okay. social conditioning really embeds itself on a cellular level, right? Uh, but I don't. I don't think it pre-exists our entry into society. It's something enculturated into us, minute by minute, hour by hour, every day. Um, the relations between gender, but also this, it is interesting, isn't it? This, this kind of resistance, reluctance to see the humanity, to actually engage with the humanity of other people, even, you know, in a kind of geopolitical context, thinking about how people are murdered, are just conveyed as statistics. <laughs> right like that it's, a clump of cells gets constitutional rights right yeah, it's, as it's you were saying. horrifying it's absolutely horrifying um how we treat other people and it it just you know i tried with i wanted this book to be um optimistic but i really had to fight a very deep skepticism <laughs> In yourself? In myself and also just, you know, witnessing how people treat other people. Yeah. But I, I do believe that that dynamic, that relation is, is the cornerstone of creating the world that we want to create. But it demands a lot of work on an individual level to get to that. that totally. Point. It demands a lot of work that like a lot of people don't have the resources or capacity for right you know, and in america yeah. for right. example and, everywhere but yeah right and even so like even if they do not everyone can take the same level of same amount of risks right in mm -hmm. order to make those 
make those make those things a reality. So even today, again, considering what is going on in Gaza, a lot of people are don't feel like they have the ability to take a stand, to speak out, to do certain things because yeah. they have to keep their job to to keep a roof over their head. It's shocking how that's playing out, actually. Right. It's almost like show me your papers kind of moments. Right, right. Do you think that books like The Woman in Me and Spare by Prince Harry indicate a significant chipping away of at least the viability of these myths that keep patriarchal structures in place? Or are they just like things that keep, we've had this story before, Tina Turner, I think of, that's another particularly brutal story, but ultimately mm -hmm. triumphant. But, you know, Prince Harry's unprecedented. I, people call this Britney's book unprecedented. I'm like, is it? Prince Harry's was, mm. but you, you mm. know what I mean? Like, yeah. do you think these two books have come out in the last sort of year and a half that are considered moments? Does it, do they have an effect? Do you think, do they indicate any kind of change? I want them to have a lasting effect. I do think they represent given who the authors right even though we know that there were ghosts involved um i do think that given the types of stories that were told in their respective books does signify something about cultural shift will it have a lasting impact I, again it only depends on if people read these books if people you know that well they are reading them they're the two top selling celebrity right. memoirs of all time right in the last right. two years yeah yeah right so then in that capacity like we're in that regard i think they i mean i can't quantify the type of sure impact, but i think certainly yeah. these books are having an impact and even with britney's conservatorship we saw you know legislation passed in california changing parameters of you know how conservatorships happen here so i think even the stories can shift how we approach and even bring awareness to different issues right you have a younger you have two younger brothers yes. one of whom you you mentioned you connect with these you were both kind of outliers mm -hmm. um have you spoken to either of them about the book uh what's your relationship like with them now Sorry. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I neither I have two younger brothers. Uh I'm closer now to the the middle child. Um and I, he has a wife and a child now of his own, so my first niece. And it's really interesting because I thought and my brothers and I always laugh that given our childhood, we would never end up <laughs> procreating or having children of our own. Um we, I think we were too scarred. But I've not spoken with either brother about my book. Um, I And my youngest brother, the one I do mention in my book as using my body, my choice, mm -hmm. as his comeback to why he refused to get vaccinated. He and I have not spoken um, since then, since that okay. incident um, a couple of years ago which was just really shocking again because we we were always outsiders in our family. He had this strange childhood, a trauma base, and the fact that he was born a twin 
but his twin died right after childbirth um, because he was told, and he should never have been told this, that his umbilical cord was wrapped around his twin's neck. And so, of course, my mother, again, my parents being my parents, they told my younger brother as a very young child that. And so my, my youngest brother has always grown up, but I think, believing that he killed his, his, his brother. Uh, which I wouldn't wish on any child. No, that's really so un, that's so unreasonable. Absolutely, like, God, that's insane. Uh, so, <laughs> case in point about my parents. Um, so we've we've not spoken at all since that incident about vaccinations. Okay, so then what about your relationship with your mom? Do you have you have you talked to her about this the book as well? She has oddly, and this. I can't even recall other times when she's said this, although I know she has. But um, she said she was proud of me for writing this book. She said she was proud of me and that she thought it was a very good book, but not everyone will agree with it. Well, she's right on both accounts, I think. <laughs> um. <laughs> and that's the depth of our discussion about my book. Yeah. Um, given how unstable and toxic your parents' relationship was, how did their divorce come about? My father was very physically abusive, not sexually abusive, but physically very abusive. Um, the difference, or I think what, maybe not the difference because I, I can't really justify that. But thing is like when he would be violent, I would, I would fight back. So if he ever tried to raise a hand to my mother, I would step in between. I would always defend her. If he was physically violent toward me, I would try to kick and punch and get away from him. Or there was a, I do recall a time when he was chasing me, like chasing me for a beat down. And I grabbed a knife out of the kitchen <laughs> because I just was like, I'm not going to take his shit. I never took his shit. I never, so, you know, we talked about this earlier. I never respected him. And I certainly wasn't going to respect anyone who wanted to hurt me. So I always fought back against How him. old were you when you were grabbing a knife to defend yourself? Maybe 10 or 11. Was that, um, where did you learn that instinct? I, this is something I, I don't know if I can attribute any kind of strength that I have. It's to again, my grandmother, I think instinctually to my grandmother, I always felt so protected, so loved, like in an absolute cocoon with her. But she, I just feel like I was, I was nurtured. I was protected. I was made whole, whole in a way. And I always felt like no matter what, she would be there for me. But where that I actually do do not know. This is a no. This because is a real terrible question. It I doesn't know. matter, really. You know, it doesn't matter. I guess it's a pretty, it's a pretty gutsy thing to do. It just felt like I had to. I mean, instinct. You you know, you used the word instinct, and it was an absolute instinct. I don't think I was saying, okay, I'm going to do this, and I I I knew what the repercussions were going to be. Um, but I I just did these things. I, I felt like I've always had a barometer for what was what was good or what was right. Um, so how did he respond to seeing you do that? Was did 
Like, at what point did he back down? Because that's emasculating. Uh, that's mm-hmm. for him, it's very emasculating. So, like, mm-hmm. how, what was it like? Describe him backing down. And then how do you think he processed that? Did you see him processing that in some way? No, I, I don't think he's ever processed it. But I can tell you that in those moments of extreme anger, they they wouldn't last more than a couple of minutes. It's almost like, you know, people use the language of like, just like your vision blurring or not seeing straight. I could tell like he entered a new kind of like biochemical state when he got completely like out of control, furious, angry. Um, But I felt like it was almost energetic. Like once he got so much anger physically out of him, then he exhausted himself. I mean, almost like, you know, I I hate saying like a brute animal, but really I think a lot of people are the same way. Like they don't know how to express themselves or communicate their feelings. And so they physically retaliate. And I knew that if I could last long enough or if I could, I was faster. As a, I mean, I could evade him in some way. So if I could uh, not only lock my door because he would bust through the door. So my door to my bedroom was it abutted a wall and I could use my legs to kind of prop myself and force the door back so it was really a matter of like how long I could out outlast him physically or uh depending on where I was I would just run like I would leave the house I would just run run and run for hours and just stay out until I felt like it was kind of safe to return or if I knew he was leaving for work I could come back um, so it's almost yeah. really uh, a matter of like outlasting or like out strategizing that violence or that anger, frankly. So when my parents divorced, I, I mean, I begged my mother for years to get a divorce. I was so happy. How old were you when that, when they did divorce? Mm, well, here's the most complicating factor. Um, and this is, I feel like is an entirely different, but this is something for hours and hours of conversation, but I was around uh, 11, I don't, you know, that time period of my life is such a blur and it's such a blur. I want to say 11, 12-ish around that time when my mother told us, my, my brothers and myself, that she was going to get a divorce. I was so happy. And she only said, she called us out into the living room and said, I'm going to divorce your father. And then that was it. There was no more discussion, but I just remember being ecstatic. The problem was that my grandmother, my father's mother, my paternal grandmother, who basically is my, and was my everything, was dying of colon cancer. And she is the Italian matriarch. And so with, for anyone who's had an Italian matriarch and their family die or be in the process of dying, not like, you know, it's, it's almost like the movie Moonstruck. <laughs> shares right. goes, this is late. It wasn't that melodramatic, but... Um, we, given my grandmother's role and power in the family and given the family dynamic, my mother decided to divorce my father. But because my grandmother was dying or colon cancer came back for a third time, by that time, my grandmother, I remember she said, I'm done. She said, Marcy, I'm done. And she gave me her necklace. Like that was basically the end of it. But it, she didn't die immediately. It took a while, um, months upon months. And so as a result, my parents were 
divorced but lived in the same house and we had to pretend like they were not divorced which was um, what a thing to carry yeah challenging it was very very hard and it was strange because my father underwent a complete transformation i'm sure because his mother was dying but also because you know they were they were divorced and so for the first time my father turned into a, an absolute weepy mess i mean he was I've, I've never seen him before like that in my life. He was just always crying. He was begging my mother to take him back. That was shocking to me to see someone who was always so distant and so emotionally shut down and shut off. Right. To this emotional was actually the probably the most shocking part of those, you know, those couple of years for me to witness that complete 180 in him. Um, and then just trying to figure out how to live your life and not tell anyone about what's going on in your home. Yeah, a lot. That's a lot to carry. I feel like a theme of the book and from what it sounds like your life is persisting with a struggle to triumph over oppression and create the world that you want to live in. You said you struggled to find a way to be hopeful. I think that there is a lot of hope in your book. I think it's also a really cathartic read. Um, oh. I read it and I felt it's like listening to Christopher Hitchens take down the Catholic church. I had this sense <laughs> of, Oh, look how wonderfully this thought I've always had is being articulated. You think balancing it out with the hope that is in the book and the fact that it's a really energizing read is perhaps a way we can close out the episode. Yeah, thank you, Matt. This podcast was created and produced by Aaron Hozier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Felt. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. And if you can, please head to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. It's just a little thing you can do, and it makes such a difference for us to get the word out about our show. Thanks for listening.